Music is so, so incredibly powerful, isn't it? Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ryan and I am the pastor at our campus, our church in, in Williamsburg. Uh, and this is my first time getting to preach to all of our churches from this stage in a little over a year. Uh, and typically getting to do this, getting to preach, uh, doesn't make me all that nervous. Um, it's something that I love to do. Uh, I get excited when I get to do it. There are other things that make me nervous. Don't, don't worry, we all have our back. Dancing, for example, in front of people, insanely nervous. Uh, but this historically has never been one of them uh, until I got here today uh, to our London campus and uh, started going, getting ready and going through all the motions to get ready to, to, to preach, not just uh, to you all here in London, but to, to all of our campuses, our churches, and everybody watching online. Uh, and I sat down next to Gabby just two minutes before the service started and put my arm around her and whispered in her ear, I'm nervous. And I don't get nervous not doing this. And then that first song fires up. My fear doesn't stand a chance when I stand in your love. And we kept singing just song after song after song. And I don't know if you've ever experienced it before when it just seems like God puts the right song on the radio or in your ear that you need in that moment. And for me, that's what I got this morning. And for, for you, whichever church you may be at, whatever campus you may be at, I hope that as we got to sing together, you got that. Uh, because music, music is so incredibly powerful. It, it can change our mood. It can give us energy and strength, vitality. It can help us to have grit. Like my wife, for example, she has a song that she listens to when she's running and she hates it. I can't tell you what it is because I'm a pastor on a stage and I'm not allowed to say the name of it, but she has a song. She does, I probably shouldn't have said that. I'll get in trouble for it later, that's okay. She has a song. When, when Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On started, started playing, I, I was transported to when I was a kid and my best friend got me a Titanic puzzle for my birthday. Now, why one boy kid gets another boy kid a Titanic puzzle for his birthday, I'll never know. I was obsessed with the Titanic, a big ship hitting a big piece of ice and sinking was fascinating to me. Um, and I, I, I remembered that because music is powerful. And, and, and you have your song. Your songs that they can, they can transport you back to a different time. Uh, when, when you hear them, it's almost like you can smell your elementary school classroom again, or you can smell that, that, that football field or that, that, that baseball court or, or whatever it is, because songs... Songs are powerful. They're, they're even medicinal. And in the Old Testament, there was this king by the name of Saul. And he was struck with, we'll just call it a bout of insanity because that's a more fun way to say it. Uh, he was driven kind of crazy. And as his medicine, he decided to have a young boy, a boy by the name of David, come and play the harp for him. And as the scripture tells us, when David would play the harp, Saul's madness went away. And then that, that same boy would go on to become king, and he would author many of the songs that we have in the book of Psalms. And what we have in that book is a record of, of one man using music to cope with his past and with his stories and with his present and with his hurts and with his victories and with God and with future and all of the things. Now, Frank Sinatra, it does something. It puts me, it puts me in a mood to cook. Now that might surprise some of you. I know I don't look like I cook or eat very often, but don't judge me and I won't judge you. It'll be a judgment-free zone. All right, we'll do that together. But I love, I absolutely love to eat. Um, I love food. I just, I hope, 
I have the same philosophy towards food that I hope you have. Um, if you're raising sons and daughters and you're teaching them about dating and marriage, I have standards for my food. Um, so, uh, but I still, I still love to eat. Uh, I wake up every single day, that's how most of us start our days, um, with my wife. And after she's taken her time to warm up because I'm a very peppy morning person, if you can't tell, she is not. So after I've waited the appropriate amount of time, I'll ask her, how'd you sleep? because you know, that's gonna dictate the next questions and the rest of my day and consequently the rest of my life. And then the, the next question is, what do you have going on today? Followed by, what do you want for dinner? And this is not something new to, to me since marriage. This is something I've done since I was a child. You can ask my mother. I have asked every single day from the moment I wake up and including the moment I get home from school, what are we eating? What's for dinner? Because food, food, there's something so very sacred about some good food and something even more sacred about getting to get in the kitchen while the kids are away and it's quiet. Can I get an amen? It's quiet and you put on some Frank Sinatra and you get to cook, not like pop it in the microwave cook, but like there's a recipe you have planned, you have prepared, people are coming over. You put some Sinatra on, you set the mood and you are cooking and the smell of what you are making is wafted up into the heavens and consequently into the rest of the house. And it is a glorious, amazing, beautiful experience. Now, I'm reliving it right now. If Frank Sinatra is not your jam, one, you have no soul, you're like a cat. We'll talk about it later, we can do some one-on-one -on -one counseling, okay? Because there is a Frank Sinatra song for everything, for, for every single mood. You've just not listened to the right Sinatra tune yet. It, it's not happened. Like, A Very Good Year, the song, A Very Good Year, where, where Sinatra takes us from the time when he was 17 years old in the countryside of Italy, running around with his girl trying to find a secret place to when he's 21 and he's in the city hanging out with these girls, that smell of perfume. And then he's 35 hanging out with blue-blooded women of well-means driving around in limousines. And then he's in the autumn of life and life and romance and relationships is like a well-aged wine. I mean, come on, you can cook to that, right? Or maybe you're getting ready to go to the casino. It's okay, we won't tell, we won't judge. Or you're having the guys over for a poker night or you just want to relive Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire and you put on some luck, be a lady tonight. Or, or you wanna slow things down. Go with Sinatra's one, for, one more for my baby. Also, very, very good play. There's a Sinatra song for almost anything in life. Now, the one that we got to listen to today is probably one of his most well-known songs, My Way. It, it, it actually, it, it's kind of surprising when you find out that it wasn't Sinatra's song. It was taken from a French tune, um, not even by Sinatra, but by somebody else you may know, a, a man by the name of Paul Anka. He heard this song while he was in France, brought it back to the States, rewrote it and tweaked it into what we now know as my way. But when he wrote it, he had this huge, huge number in mind with this orchestra and a man just as big as the song. And he found that man in one Frank Sinatra. And so he debuted it, surrounded by a full band, 
to all of these people. And it was a glorious moment because it was a song. It was an anthem of a generation, a generation that was Sinatra's, the GI generation, the greatest generation. If there was ever a generation that could say, I stood tall, I faced it all, I did it my way. It's the ones who faced down the Nazis, right? It's the ones who faced down the communists. It's the ones who looked at the world and they said, we're gonna stand up for what we believe in, come hell or high water, we're gonna fight for it. We're gonna take the consequences. We're gonna go my way. And it was such a big song. Even the message of it today, even more popular now and even more fitting now. Because you wanna talk about an American virtue. I did it my way. Jay-Z even hijacked it. He couldn't help himself in a song that he wrote. I did it my way, very creative with the title, in which he likened himself unto Sinatra, right? Right, the, 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 the chest thumping, look at what I did. I even hung out with the mob. I did these amazing things. Look at all the songs I released and I did it all my way. Such, such a very American idea. This idea of self-determination that you and I, that we get to determine our destiny, that we get to decide what is right. Find what makes you happy and chase after it because God, and even if God isn't concerned, even if God doesn't exist, your happiness is of the chief virtue. You do you, you follow your own truth, you go your own way and you fight for it. You were born this way, you were made this way, you chose this way, you go this direction, no matter what anybody says to you, you go your way. There is nothing more American than that. There's something inside of all of us. When somebody looks at us as Americans, now they have to be from a particular tribe or party or camp, but they tell us you, we can't or we should. There's something that just wells up and says, watch me. Now we, you see this early on in every toddler, but there's something about us in particular that we just never grow out of it. For example, and I'm not making a statement with any of these, these are just examples. Somebody tells you, you have to wear a mask. And there's a particular portion of our population that said, no, I won't, watch me. And you marched in with pride into that supermarket or into that mall or into that giant amusement park or wherever you went, proudly mask-free. Or they start talking about, you know, they're gonna limit weapons and what's the response? Over my cold, dead fingers. Or people are gonna tell you what you have to do with your body and you say, oh yeah, watch this, game is on. There's something we all have in common, regardless of your political persuasion. You know what it is? We don't like it when people tell us what we can and cannot do. Even those of us who are like politically baby bears porridge, we're right in the middle. What's our ideal? We just want a world when everybody can do whatever the stink they want, where you can go your way and I can go my way and we can all be happy. The problem with this whole song is for one, it doesn't fit with Sinatra. I don't know if there's any like true blue Sinatra fans in here, but most of them despise the song because it doesn't fit with the rest. You know that little game that you had to play in elementary school wasn't a game, it was like a homework assignment where you had to pick one thing that didn't mesh with all of the others. 
It's one song that doesn't mesh with all of other Sinatra songs. Listen to them. They're all talking about, you know, love for a friend or a buddy or love for a girl or love for a place or just love in general or life. Sinatra wasn't known as a guy who was chest thumping, talking about how great or how awesome he was. He was known as somebody who shared the spotlight, who was warm, who was relational, who didn't so much get to where he got by doing things his way. It's for that reason that he actually retired the song for 10 years until popular demand demanded that he bring it back. He loathed the message. He hated the song because at the core of it, there was something that just didn't sit right with him. I don't think it was something that Sinatra necessarily figured out on his own. I think it was something that we've known all along. There is a book in the Old Testament, the, 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 the Jewish Bible, the first portion of our scriptures called the book of Proverbs. And within this book is a collection of all of these wise sayings. We attribute them to a king, a king by the name of Solomon. But in, in this book, there's a statement that I believe is at the core of why Sinatra loathed this song so much. And it goes like this. There is a way that seems right to a man. A way that you tell yourself you should live your life. A thing that you wanna do and you have really good reasons for doing it. A course that you wanna take, but its end is the way to death but it's such a good song, isn't it? And that's, that's part of how enticing it is. It even seems, it seems right, right? To, to figure out what you're here for and to chase after it no matter what, no holds bar, run hard, face all the consequences. You can deal with it. It's what's inside of you. It's your truth. It's the direction that you should go. It's what makes you happy. You're, it, it's what fulfills you. This other thing didn't work out. The marriage net maybe didn't work out. You're not as happy as you were. It didn't go the way you thought. The career didn't go the direction you wanted it to. And so what do we do? We sing the song my way. And it's a song that seems so very heroic in the moment. It's a great rallying cry, but live long enough to sing it to its end and you'll find yourself the villain. Or in the words of Solomon in the book of Proverbs, you'll find yourself dead. Now here's, here's partly why this is the way it is. Truth and the best choice isn't a multiple choice test. You can choose your own path and, and you can certainly go your own way, but God designed and authored life to work a certain way. It's why so often when people go their own direction, their lives end up getting off the tracks. And maybe you're here and, and you could say a hearty amen to that, but you don't want to because you're in the midst of life getting off the tracks. See, God is a God of promises. He promises that if you go his way, life, while it may not be easy, it will be more of the ideal and you will experience better. When God created humanity, we find this in the book of Genesis, he gave us what's called the law of human nature. It's an idea that C.S. Lewis wrote about. He wrote on our hearts and on our minds and on our conscience this, 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 this code and this law of what is right and what is wrong. And when we choose to vacate and to go away from what God has clearly said is right and we chase after what God has clearly said is wrong, when we call beautiful what God calls ugly, there's consequences. 
And it's not God getting you, it's God trying to keep you from something. We just make really dumb choices. Now in the Old Testament, we have more promises from God. Now the Old Testament, you may have heard me reference it this way a moment ago, is the Jewish scriptures. It was written by Jews predominantly with Jews in mind. And so when you look at the Old Testament, what you find is not always promises that are actually made to you. It's a common mistake that we all make. But a lot of time it's, times it's promises that God is making to a particular group of people. And in the Old Testament, we call these promises covenants. They're, they're contracts, binding contracts. Sometimes they were between God and individuals, and sometimes they were between God and entire groups of people. One such, one such was made between God and his people while they were under the leadership of a dude named Moses. You may remember him, big burning bush, all the plagues, Egypt, let my people go, Pharaoh said no. That Moses, caught up? Now, Moses is gonna take God's people, they're gonna be in the wilderness, and God is going to basically go into negotiation mode with Moses, for lack of a better term. How negotiations go with God, I'm assuming God probably always wins. But he goes into negotiation mode with God. And so Moses goes up on the top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, while all the people are kind of camped around the, the, the foot of the mountain, and they're looking up at the top, and there's a smoke and light show. Think like, you know, the creek church on top of a mountain, but God did it first. And so th that's, all, that's all going down. And God is authoring this promise, this covenant with his people. He says, be my people, essentially, and I'll be your God. If you will go my way, if you will follow my, my precepts, if you will follow my code, if you will actually be my people, then I'll be yours. And you want me on your side. Why? Because I'm God. You want me at your back. Now, this invitation is really similar to the invitation of Jesus. Jesus, contrary to popular belief or maybe the faith tradition you grew up in, never invited his disciples to walk an aisle and fill out a card. Jesus never asked his disciples to pray a prayer and ask him into his heart. Why it was weird, he was right there. He wouldn't have fit into their heart. It's anatomy, it, I know, it makes sense when you think about it. Jesus looked at his followers and he said what? His invitation was, follow me. Why? Because in order to be a Jesus follower, that means you are following him. You are going his direction. Not a one-time decision, but an everyday adventure. Sure, it starts with a singular moment when we decide to follow Jesus and forsake ourselves and everything else. But then we remake that decision every single day. And that is what it means to actually follow. That is what it means when God was making this agreement with his people. To be my people means what? You act like it. To be a part of the tribe, you have to what? Act like some of the tribal people. To be a part of the clique, there's certain things you have to wear. To be a part of the group, there's certain language you have to speak. And so God is looking at his people and he's saying, be my people, go my way. And if you go my way, I'm going to always be with you. Now, Moses is up at the, the, the top of the mountain and the ink isn't even dry on the contract yet, right? Covenant still being drawn up, chiseling in a stone, it takes a long time. When the people down at the foot of the mountain just get kind of bored and they start daydreaming about Egypt and they start remembering the food. They were food people too, apparently. And they start remembering the amazing food in Egypt and all these things. And they start remembering all the amazing things that they had seen and they get bored, right? Because let's be honest, sometimes we get bored. 
And, 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 and they got bored, so they decided, you know, this whole waiting on God thing is really boring, so we're just gonna make our own God and we're gonna tell, we're gonna tell ourselves this, this is who delivered us. So they collect all the jewelry, you know, ladies take their earrings off and they smelt it and they put it into this fiery furnace and out comes uh, a, a grass-eating cow. Not literally, but like a golden image of, of a baby cow. And they say, this, this is our God, because if you can pick from all the animals, why not pick a baby cow? Before the ink is even dry on the contract between God and his people, God's people screw it up. They decide we're gonna go our own way. And what happens next? Well, the scariest thing God can do is let you have your way. The scariest thing that God can let you do is let you have your way. They had their way and there were consequences. See, going our own way is so incredibly enticing. In the church world, you've heard this word, sin, right? And there's lots of connotations to it, but essentially it's when we decide to go our way and not go God's. And sin is always presented as this incredible adventure. It's exotic. It's, it's going to be fun, right? Because if it's not fun and you're doing it, obviously you're doing it very, very wrong. Nobody else is actually doing it this way. Why don't you stop living for God, stop doing these things and rebel, right? Because nobody's ever done that before. It's presented as an incredible adventure, but going our way is terribly, terribly predictable to the point of being boring. You've seen the story play out in your life and in your decisions, the small ones, the big ones, in your family and your friends and other people and your heroes, we've all seen it. Before the, the contract was even up in the story of Moses in the book of Exodus, they broke it. But if you read the Old Testament, what most people walk away with is like, man, God was really angry back then. What happened? Like he took a nap between the Old Testament and Jesus. No, 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 no. Read the stories about those people. They never held up their end of the bargain, but God never gave up on them. God never forsook them. God never walked away. In, in, in the Psalms, there's, there's a line that I think sums this up perfectly. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. If we ever read, if you've ever read, if you ever encounter somebody who reads the Old Testament and they walk away with a few verses talking about how angry and mean and terrible and barbaric God is, tell them to read all of it and to read the stories about how terrible these people were, but how God loved them anyway, because that is the point. Not that God gets angry, not that God is after people to pay them back, but that God is after people to win them back. Now, here's what this means for us. And we've not even gotten to the sermon yet. I don't know you that well. Some of you I do. You don't know me that well. Some of you do. But we all walked in here today with different baggage and with different stories. And you have different things going on between your ears than I have going on between my ears. And you have different dynamics at your house than I have at my house. And you have different struggles and different proclivities than I have. But we've all been dealt a hand. And we're all dealing with circumstances. And we're all dealing with our own stories and our own baggage and our own temptations and our own proclivities to go our way. And our reasons why we think it's right. But regardless of the hand we've been dealt, or the circumstances we are facing, God is gracious and good enough to allow us the chance to write a better story. Wherever you are, whatever you're facing, 
There's not a period at the end of anything. There's more to the story. And I believe that you're here today in London, in Somerset, online, in Williamsburg, to hear that. God is gracious and good enough to allow us the chance to write a better story. And that's the story of a man that we're gonna look at today. A king, the king of Judah by the name of Zedekiah. Now, Zedekiah came to power at a time when it wasn't convenient to come to power. He inherited a mess. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you walked in today with a mess. Maybe you are a mess. Join the club, we'll make t-shirts later. Zedekiah became the king of a kingdom in its twilight years. It was fading and it was fading fast, right? Maybe you feel that way about your marriage. Maybe it's not what it once used to be. Maybe you feel that way about your parenting. Maybe you feel that way emotionally. Maybe you feel that way about your job. That was Zedekiah. He was a king of a kingdom that was in its decline. It had seen its glory years and it was getting ready to get taken. Now, Zedekiah was the son of a great king, a man by the name of Josiah, a man who put the kingdom back on track. But as these stories often do about kings and princes and inheritance, Josiah's sons weren't as great as their father. And what one generation built and tried to redeem, the next generation tore down. Zedekiah's next son took power and didn't reign for very long and he was killed and defeated by the Egyptians. The next son took power and he was killed and defeated as the Babylonians came to power. And then his son came to power and he was taken captive and led away to Babylon. And so comes to us, the man Zedekiah, the man in a long laundry list of kings, of a kingdom in its twilight years. And he became king when he was 21. When he was 21, he began to reign and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Now, before we move on, he didn't, the fact that he's 21 isn't all bad, all right? Isn't all bad because his dad, Josiah, became king when he was eight. I have a seven-year-old. That sounds terrifying. If my seven-year-old daughter became queen, it means we would all do nothing but watch Star Wars and eat buffalo wings. And actually doesn't sound half that bad. Now, Zedekiah was 21 years old. He began to reign, he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem and he did, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. Even though he had seen everything that his brothers had done before him, he had seen that his brothers also forsook God, that his brothers also decided to sing the song my way and he saw how the song ended. He still decided to go his way. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah, the prophet that God would send, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. Why? Because he told himself the really dumb thing that we all tell ourselves. It happened to them, but it won't happen to me. I won't get caught. I'm smarter than that. It's okay. I'm different. That was their story. That's not my story. Even though the story ends up the exact same way. Or if that's not the stupid thing he told himself that we all tell ourselves, all right, ground is equal here. We all do equally stupid things. He told himself there will be consequences. There will be a burn for this, but I'm willing to pay it. I can pay it. I can face the burn because in light of getting to do it my way, it's going to be worth it, right? The burn is worth it. And so he decided to do the exact same thing that his brothers and his nephew did. 
But not only did he rebel against God, not only did he turn a blind ear to the prophets that God would send, he also rebelled against the king. A man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear, him being Zed, swear by God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord, the God of Israel. Zedekiah looked at God and he said, my will, not your will, be done, Lord. And that sounds so audacious. Now, if you're here and you're, you're not a person of faith, you consider yourself an atheist or an agnostic, that doesn't sound so audacious. But if you're a person of any kind of faith, the idea of looking at God and having the hubris to say, nah, is shocking, right? But we all do that. Maybe we don't look at God and say, nah, out loud, but with our actions with our inactions, the opportunities we take and the opportunities we don't take, the ways we speak to our spouse, the ways we speak to our children, the things that we do and we don't do, the ways that we talk about our boss, the ways that we think about things. We all say in many, many ways, my will, not your will be done, O Lord. But God, but God is gracious and God is good and God is patient. And even though Zedekiah was intensely dumb, he sends to Zedekiah a prophet a man that we just talked about in the book of Chronicles, a man by the name of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, he's gonna go and he's gonna catch wind that not just Zedekiah, but all the kingdoms around Israel or also around Judah, I'm sorry, are also planning to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And so Jeremiah, he was one of these people that like to use props. I don't know, maybe, maybe you're one of those people who like to see props for the teachers. I didn't bring one, sorry. But Jeremiah was, he got himself a yoke, right? And a yoke is what they would put around like oxen so they could plow things or carry things. He got himself a yoke. And he, he put it on himself and he went to this assembly because all the little kingdoms that decided they were going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, even though they gave their word, they were assembled in the capital city of Jerusalem, plotting together because Nebuchadnezzar was the king of a vast empire. And while the cats away, the mice will play and the mice were playing. And so Jeremiah busts into the room where everybody's together making their little plots and concocting their schemes with a yoke around his neck. I imagine it was a very hilarious picture. But he walks in and he's basically saying, look, there's an opportunity for you. Get in line. God has a message for you. If you will burden yourself, if you will take this yoke upon you, if you will go God's way, if you will see your oath through, it's going to be better for you. And then he delivers this zinger to all these petty kings and nobles that are assembled in the room. He's, and, and this message is from God and it's God saying, it is I. It is I, it is God, it is by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth and I give it to whoever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands to the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. We're gonna pause here for a minute. Now this isn't the point of the sermon, but you can't talk about Zedekiah and not talk about this. Jeremiah busts into the room and he is God's mouthpiece and God is saying through him, Nebuchadnezzar is my man. I own the earth and everything in it from every gigantic organism to every little teeny tiny atom, from every king to every pauper, from every massive organization to your little startup over on First Street, I own it all every little bit of it. And this Nebuchadnezzar guy, he's my man. Wait, he's what? He's my man. But don't you know Nebuchadnezzar? My man. 
I put him there. But don't you know this is the guy who commits atrocities and genocide? He's a pagan, a heretic. He makes sacrifices to foreign gods. He has a harem. Dude, this man sleeps around. That's God's man. I put him there. And we don't like that, do we? Jeremiah walks into the room and he proclaims proudly, there is no authority outside of the authority that God gives. None. If they are king, guess who allowed them to be there? Jesus. If they are the cop that keeps pulling you over, guess who appointed them? Who had a hand in giving them that authority? Jesus. If they are a teacher, if they are a coach, if they are a president, guess who put them there? Whether you voted for them or not, Jesus. And the people in the room, I imagine they were probably like a lot of you, aghast. You're saying God would put somebody like that there? Yes, because God's not concerned with your flag. He's concerned with his kingdom and he has a bigger agenda at play. And I imagine Jeremiah looked at all those men and women in the room who were very offended. And he said, you know what? God isn't in it for your kingdom. Or as I heard one wise man say a couple weeks ago, God doesn't stand for our national anthem, for your national anthem. God stands for his kingdom and he will use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He will speak from donkeys all day. He's done it for a really long time and he's not done doing it yet. Now for a lot of us that can build up some anxiety, right? And we can look at God and we can say, God, how can you allow that? But for me, that gives me confidence to know that no matter what the world looks like, I can sleep so incredibly well because it's in the hands of God. Now, after he's done talking to the little conspirators in that room in Jerusalem, he, tur he turns tail and goes and finds the king, Zedekiah, who's chilling out in his palace. And he goes to Zedekiah. He still has the yoke on his neck because well, why not? It's, it's an accessory at this point. He gives them the same spiel, but then he looks at the king and he says, why? Why will you and your people die by the sword? Because that's what's going to happen. If you rebel against this king that you have made oaths to, that God has put over you, your people will die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, as the Lord has spoken concerning any nation that will not serve the king of Babylon. Why go the wrong way? Why go my way when I know the consequences? Because I'm concerned with me, but that's a point for later. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you. And another part in the story that we won't get to touch on super deep today, there are these other prophets and priests in the city of Jerusalem and they have the king's ear. And they're telling the king, don't listen to Jeremiah, he's a liar. You're God's king, you're God's chosen people. You're the kingdom, you can't lose. Go your direction. As a matter of fact, if you rebel, you will whoop them so bad, they'll bring back everything they ever stole from you. And Zedekiah listens because he's just like us. We all drift towards beliefs that excuse our behavior. And it's so easy to find a teacher or a tribe that will validate what you want to do. Wanna have an affair? Wanna leave them? Wanna be a crummy parent? Wanna justify your parenting method? Wanna rebel against your boss and be poisonous and toxic? You wanna justify whatever it is that you do, whatever it is you eat, whatever it is that you consume, whatever it is that you watch to numb all of the poor life choices that you've made. There's a group for you on Facebook. 
There's a tribe you can find. There's a teacher, there's a pastor, there's a guru, there's a blogger. There's somebody out there that will tell you it is okay to go your way. Because we all crave a theology that allows us to do whatever we want. And that is what Zedekiah does. He rebels against the king. And even though the, the cat was away and the mice thought they could play, the cat heard about it, got jealous and came back. And on January 15th, 588 BC, surrounded the city with his troops and Nebuchadnezzar began the siege of Jerusalem. Now there was more at play in the geopolitics. There was another kingdom nearby, the kingdom of Egypt. And Egypt heard what was going on and decided they were gonna come in and join the fun. And, and they sent an army to engage the Babylonians because Egypt wanted Dominus in the region. And so when Egypt came, Nebuchadnezzar and his troops withdrew from the city and everybody said, see, it didn't happen. Those consequences didn't come. Jeremiah was wrong. You got away with it, bro. But Zedekiah was foolish, but not completely stupid. He knew that there was a chance he was wrong. And he did like a lot of us do, right? We'll inquire of people and want their advice. And we'll read the Bible. We'll read the books. We'll talk to pastors. We'll listen to podcasts. We'll read the blogs and then decide, nah, I'm going to go my way. And even though the troops were gone, there was this sneaking feeling in Zed's gut. And so King Zedekiah sent Jehaku, the son of Shelemiah, and Zephaniah the priest, the son of Messiah, to Jeremiah the prophet, saying, please pray for us to the Lord our God. Right, that's what we do. When we think that the bottom's about to fall out, you go to the people who told you not to do, and you're like, will you pray for me? I really messed this up. And that's exactly what Jeremiah does because he has this sneaking suspicion that it's not over yet. Everybody else is throwing a party in the streets, but Zedekiah knows it might not be that great. And so Jeremiah looks at the king and he says, you're right. I'll pray for you because you need it. Because the king's gonna come, because the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is gonna come back. And if you don't surrender, it's over. Now he did, Jeremiah, Zedekiah and the people of Jerusalem did to Jeremiah what we wish we could do to the people that tell us the things that we don't want to hear. First, they imprisoned him because the joker just wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't stop telling them that the end is near. And if you don't surrender to this superior army, you're going to get your butts kicked. And so they imprisoned him. And then King Zedekiah started to feel bad. And so he went and he had Jeremiah saved and taken out of prison. And he was allowed to live at the chief guard's house. The only problem was the joker wouldn't stop squawking. He kept saying, the end is near, the end is near. Like one of those crazy soapbox prophets with a cardboard sign on. Jeremiah wouldn't stop. So he did so. The people did the next logical thing. They threw him down a well. We should bring that back. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> now... The time came when the troops returned and Nebuchadnezzar came back. And the king went and he, he restored Jeremiah and met with Jeremiah in private. And he was like, okay, bro, you've said all this in public. I've said all my stuff in public. I, I get it. You're a prophet. You're a man of God. You can't back down in public. I get it. And I'm a king. I can't back down, but it's just us right now. So you can tell me the truth. How's this thing really gonna go down? And Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And this city shall not be burned with fire and you and your house shall live. But 
But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they shall burn it with fire and you shall not escape from their hand. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me after Zedekiah rebelled, 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 and rebelled, there's still a chance? Of course there is. With God, there's almost always a chance. There's a second, a third, a fourth. If you're not dead, there's still a chance. But Zedekiah looks to Jeremiah and he says, but I'm afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them and they deal cruelly with me. In other words, what about me? Like, if I do this, how are they gonna treat me? Joker completely forgets that there's an entire city, his family, his sons, a country, a kingdom on the line. The one thing he was consumed by, the one thing he was concerned with was what about me? You're right. We can't relate to Zedekiah because our what about me's are so much smaller than his. The, the things that we're chasing after aren't kingly pride of standing up for a nation. No, no, no. What about me? I need that fix. What about me? I've got to watch. What about me? I want to look. What about me? I want to be satisfied. I want to be loved. I want to have that relationship. I want to have that career. I want to go my way. What about me? And we what about me ourselves into oblivion into losing everything that we've loved. But Jeremiah said, it's not gonna be at all what you think it's gonna be. You shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord in what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. And Jeremiah says again, listen, it's not gonna be that bad. It might hurt a little, yeah, because doing the right thing does. Going God's way isn't easy, but it's better and there's life on the other side. But if you go your way, if you choose and insist on singing that song to its better end, it will be a bitter drink. And he repaints that picture for Jeremiah. The Babylonians continue to besiege the city and eventually they break through the wall. And when they do, the king is still hedging his bets. He gets himself together the finest troops that he has and with his sons and as many as he can take with him, he flees into the plains of Jericho. But the Babylonians enraged give chase and they catch him. They bring him back before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the account in second Kings records, they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes. The last thing, he would ever see and put out the eyes of the king and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. He was given chance after chance, after chance, after chance. And today is your chance. I don't know what you've been saying no to. I don't know what that still small voice has been whispering to you to get rid of, to, to walk away from, what apps you need to delete, what relationships you need to distance yourself from, what pride, what garbage you need to get rid of, what you need to do for your marriage or for your family or for your house or for your community. I don't know what the Holy Spirit's been whispering to you if you're a Jesus follower. And yeah, it might hurt a little bit to go God's way because surrendering to God, it will cost you something, but refusing to surrender to God will cost you everything. 
So here's the question I want to end with. If you're a Jesus follower, if you're a man and a woman of faith, it's been my experience that my faith is very cozy and comfy and I like it my way. But when we're following Jesus, when we're chasing his kingdom, it's always found at the edge of the map and getting there is never a comfortable thing. When was the last time that your faith, that my faith demanded me to do something that I didn't want to do? Because if the answer is it's been a while, you may not be going God's way. Odds are you're going yours. I don't know what it looks like for you. And I don't know what that application step is. But I know that if you take the first, God will help you with the second. It might be scary and there might be a cost, but at the other side of going God's way is freedom and life. So don't sing that song to its better end. And imagine what would happen if God's people got this right. If we stopped insisting that church and faith and going God's way looked like how we wanted it to look and it looked a whole lot more like Jesus. That, my friends, is what the world is waiting for. Let me pray for us. God, let it begin with me. God, I pray that when your voice speaks, when you nudge and when you lead and you direct through your word and through your people, through your spirit, that God, I wouldn't say no and that I wouldn't insist on, on my way, but that I would take the path that appears less traveled and I would go yours. I pray that as your people, that we would be a church that sets our hearts and our affection and our attention on chasing after our King, that we would take our orders from you, that we wouldn't take our cues from politicians or bloggers or leaders or parents or any other person other than our King, that you would be our be all and our end all. And as we love like you have sent us to love and as we have compassion like you have sent us to have compassion and as we take this thing seriously, that your church would do what it did once before, that people would look at it with a perplexing glance as your people love radically those who are not like them, as we wade into the mess of other people's lives, as we sacrifice our own will and our own desire for our kings, and we choose to write a better story, regardless of circumstance, regardless of what's going on in the rest of the world, because God, it's why you put us here. So God, would you do that among your people? Would your spirit not stop chirping in our hearts until we take that step? And as we do, the works that you prepared for us to do in advance, would a lost and a broken world look at it and see your hope and see your kingdom and say, I want that. In your son's name of Jesus, amen.